This is writer and game designer Robin D. Law. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Mystery Ready Monsters. Pinks and Greens Redux. Writing underrepresented groups. And Stealing Newton. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without trader mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful. So you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or Curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the friendly confines of the Gaming Hut. But within the Gaming Hut, one of the miniatures is on his side, and the dice are showing a terrifying pattern of ones. Perhaps there is a mystery here to be solved, but what kind of monster could have created this tableau? Uh, Robin, Peter Frampton has an alibi, so it must be a monster. What kind of monsters do we want to see, or rather see the spore of, in our investigative occult mystery sneakity type games, as opposed to our walk into the dungeon and sure enough it's an ank egg type games? Right, because uh, I've been just uh, working on the my final pass on the Yellow King, which includes, of course, four different monster sections, one for each of the four uh, settings or sequences of that game, and... Uh, was reminded of how these creatures are often different than, as you suggest, your basic uh, get-in-the-way-and-fight-through-you-to-the-treasure kind of creature. And so I thought we would uh, look at ways to create creatures or inhuman beings, or I guess, you know, even, you know, human foes, I suppose, who are specifically there in order to have something uh, mysterious happen around them. And one way to do this, I guess, is to look at mystery shows that have creatures in them like Supernatural or, or the X-Files and see how they are handled in those shows. Uh, one element off the top is that they are often uh, seem to be human, that they are able that either they actually are humans who have become monsters and whose monstrousness is not uh, always apparent or not readily apparent, or at least are able to navigate the ways of society because that then gives you someone who can be mysteriously uh, committing 
classically a string of um, murders or wreaking some other sort of havoc that you're investigating. Some That's the disorder that you're trying to, to rectify by finding out what's going on. And so uh, a lot of the creatures in Yellow King uh, can take human form. So in The Wars, which is uh, set, of course, in the 1947 Continental Wars, several of the creatures can look like uh, soldiers and uh, they can come up, uh, you know, there's a, the Red Medic who comes up and, you know, has miraculous healing abilities, but if you realize that what they're doing as a medic is far beyond what a normal medic could do, then you, what's going on here? And it turns out they're not doing that for a good reason. I suspected as much. Yeah. So when I designed that creature, that implies a whole, you know, set of mysteries is there's, you know, someone is preying on soldiers and then you, that implies the storyline where you find out who that is and then you discover that it's the, uh, that person, uh, kind of kitted out as a medic, and oh wait, their insignia isn't quite right, and then then uh, that moves you uh, to the end of the mystery. Well, that's not a yellow cross at all. Exactly. The uh, I've, in some cases, obviously, that's driven by the constraints of episodic TV that they can't be making a monster model every episode, and that humans are more interesting to look at by and large than some dumb special effect. The uh, way you sort of get around that is classically. Um, goes back, you know, at least as far, and I'm sure even farther than the good old Star Trek episode, Wolf in the Fold, where the monster is a faultlessly scientific electromagnetic entity, but it possesses a people or takes human form at times. So there's a human being at the center of it, but the monster is somehow connected to human society. And obviously, again, it also, uh, does the other thing that I think you need to have one of the two desiderata for a monster in a mystery is either the monster has to turn out to be something we've already heard of, like that monster turns out to be Jack the Ripper, and we're all like, Jack the Ripper in space, that's cool. Or the monster has to leave significant clues that then allow you to piece together an M.O., despite A, not being actual forensic scientists, and B, it being something of a leap, but it's the sort of dramatic leap that works in our minds because we've seen it done over and over in serial fiction. And the example there is uh, the cloud creature that preys on um, uh, hemoglobin and drinks blood. Uh, that is a classic vampire, so it's recognizable, but it also leaves that same pattern of kills behind it so that you can say, oh, we think it's a vampire monster of some kind. And in Star Trek, it's a cloud of some kind because that's even more fun than watching a people. But generally, if that were any other show, it would be either a person who's a vampire or maybe someone who's like a Romanian Muroni spirit who's got a vampire that possesses them because they um, are actually a corpse or because they've eaten part of a corpse or because they just walked over a graveyard at the wrong time. Right. So basically, you're, you're looking to create a creature that implies a story that goes along with it. In an F20, uh, an F20 creature, the story might be the creatures on the other side of the door and you hit it and one of you falls over. Mm -hmm. But here, uh, there's, it has to imply an activity that the characters can do, uh, not only while they are in contact with the creature, but before they are. So another mystery that you can design into a creature is how do we kill this thing? Right. So in that case, you could have, uh, you know, could be a vampire or it could be, uh, since of course you have no, uh, CGI budget constraints, uh, could be a weird purple amoeba worm thing that you can describe in detail. And the question is not, uh, you know, who is it disguised as, 
but how do you kill this thing? And then, uh, you know, where, where did it come from? Uh, so that might, you know, the, you notice the amoeba thing is running, uh, rampant in the city and, and instead of just trying to figure out who it's going to attack next, it's MO, as you suggest, and try and get there and, and intercept it and kill the thing. You don't know how to kill the thing yet. So y- your investigation is how does this thing work and how do I snuff it? So that might entail finding out who the scientist was who wrote the paper that suggests that uh, this amoeba thing could exist and then finding out where that scientist works and finding the underground lab under the apparently anodyne offices of where the scientists work and how to get into the lab and how to get past the guards. Then you find the secret, you get the formula, you get the um, antidote, and then you put your uh, anti-amoeba juice in your super soaker, and then you go out and confront it. So that's another uh, classic storyline that you can uh, uh, wrap around uh, a creature. Another uh, one, Ken, you know, any other ways that we can make these uh, creatures... Uh, story generating? Um, the classic mystery also, of course, uh, depends when it doesn't depend on things like straight up MO, uh, the questions of motive, uh, pertain, and that merely means give the creature a reason to do the thing. Uh, purple amoeba may just be killing because that's what purple amoebae do and you can't hold them down, man. But a purple amoeba that was built by a scientist because he hates those jerks in the rich fat kids lab across the, uh, across the city, that's an amoeba with a motive, and the motive is a human motive that you can uncover, and that may be what helps you narrow it down to the sciences. scientist, is that it's attacking a bunch of guys, all of whom coincidentally have research grants from this other lab. And now you're like, that's an odd pattern for an alleged creature from the beyond to uh, engage in. Maybe there's a human behind it, and you look for a motive. And the motive can also be an inhuman motive, like if you are um, uh, 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 faced with some sort of Manitou spirit, um, maybe someone has desecrated a, uh, a, a Cherokee historical site, or not a Cherokee because they didn't have Manitous, but an Algonquin historical site of some kind. Or maybe, um, uh, someone is building a housing development on the titular Indian burial ground, or there's some other kind of a, of a, of a violation going on that is what causes the, a feedback loop of this monster to occur. So a, a motive doesn't even have to be a, a human being motive, although Manitou uh, in the classical form usually has a human attached to it, but it can be a simple cause and effect. It's that, oh no, you knocked over the monolith and that's how you get purple amoeba worms. And you got to put the monolith back up because those druids who put that monolith up do a thing or two. Another mystery you can wrap around a creature is uh, where is it so we can go and kill it? The mystery is not how do you kill the uh, French uh, worm dragon, uh, the, the gargouille from uh, uh, French mythology. We already found the, the saint sword that we need to go and stab it. But where in the vast underground panoply of uh, chambers and catacombs in Paris is it actually hiding out? How, how can a giant dragon be uh, hiding out under Paris? How can we figure out uh, where, to, where to locate it? Uh, that can be a, another mystery. Another thing that you can look at are creatures that are servitors of humans with motives. So uh, in this instance, the climax of the mystery is not going and finding the monster, but uh, you find the uh, the inhuman creature fairly early on, or probably more likely it finds you because the bad guys sent it uh, out to get you, and then they have some sort of ancillary clue uh, with them. In uh, This is normal now. There's a a creepy sort of paper mache 
bobblehead creature called a fleener uh, that is basically a, a herald and a spy of uh, human enemies who uh, are part of the yellow sign conspiracy and uh, they can uh, kind of follow you anywhere and so if you run into them you know you're in trouble you know that you're dealing with and so the question is okay so which conspiracy sent them against me and because they are made of paper mache uh, once you uh, attack them and and uh, and bust them up like a pinata guess what some of the newspapers or magazines that they were uh, made from could have a clue that could lead you uh, to their uh, human uh, summoners and so that's another way that because uh, sometimes it's it's fun to have uh, a sort of a secondary monster and uh, rather than have the you know the end of the scenario then is a confrontation with the human villains and you've already had the fun monster bit earlier on just to sort of a, a mix them up so that you're not always having a monster fight at the end of every supernatural mystery and the and the human um uh, to make to make it not be an anticlimax uh because you can just shoot a human usually uh the the human can have some other thing that is connected to the monster if if he's got a paper mache monster maybe he's got uh he's built himself a cool paper mache body that he uh is living inside and it's got like super armor because it's hard paper mache and you have to sort of either talk him out of uh his invulnerable armor spot or you have to figure out something that will you know pierce his lacquer of uh, angry uh, castanist tabloids. Yeah, so if he's if he's got uh, Fleener's working for him, he's got other things up his sleeve. He hasn't, right. uh, you know, shot his entire bolt uh, just by sending a, a creature up against you. So if we consider the monster the means, we consider the person behind the monster the motive, and we consider the location that we can hunt the monster to our opportunity, I believe that we have wrapped up the mystery of making a mystery monster as neatly as any golden age detective. And so we can usher the terrified remains out of our study, uh, smoke our pipe and move into the calm bliss of an ad. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrain Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? (laughs) 
the camouflage painted on the walls and the tactical map laid out on the table tell us that we are in, I think this is the debut of this hut, the command hut, in which uh, we will contemplate uh, matters military. Uh, and uh, in this case, uh, we are uh, investing the command hut at the command of Patreon backer Thomas Vallejo, who poses the following poser. I recently read that the U.S. Army is seriously considering issuing a new service uniform based on the 1940-1954 version of the U.S. Uh, Army uniform, a.k.a. the pink and greens. Could it be an attempt by those with arcane knowledge in the Army to recapture Mojo that helped us win World War II? And I have to conclude that there's got to be something going on beyond the surface here, because as I did my research into this move to bring back the this particular uh, classic uniform, uh, but with new comfortable uh, fabric, uh, which I assume is the reason that it was decommissioned in the first place in the mid-50s, is that the uh, original great-looking version uh, was not so comfortable to wear. There was not a lot of explanation aside from, yep, looks great, we're doing this. So it, it seems to me there's, there's, I don't know if it's an arcane mystery, Ken, but it seems to be some kind of mystery. So um, what what do we need to know uh, about this uh, classic uniform, first of all. Um, the first thing that we need to know about the uniform is it's pinks and greens, not pink and greens. That will hopefully silence the lengthy complaints that happen. I can hear the typing already. I can hear now the typing already. Untyped. Second of all, it's called the pinks and greens because uh, the pants that went with the or trousers, as I guess we say overseas when we are fighting uh, the hated uh, fascists with the hated British on our side. Right, because you don't want the, the, the Brits fighting beside you to just laugh instead of shoot. Right, no. Uh, the, the, the pinks and greens began during the interwar era as we didn't really have a strong uniform tradition. There was sort of, if you wore a blue coat, that was about right. And then once we got into war in Europe, we realized, like everyone else fighting a war in Europe, that you probably shouldn't wear a coat that stands out like blue. So uh, <laughs> there's a reason people wear uniforms in wars. Yeah. And so they began using um, an olive drab. Uh, we had khaki, of course, uh, before that at the during the uh, Spanish American War uh, became olive drab. And then slowly over the course of World War One. Uh, and again, you have to remember the United States military uh, at during World War One was a powerful war ending force, but it was sort of ad hoc and we were just buying stuff wherever we could. Uh, the Wilson administration, among its other many, many failures, did not do a super great job as a quartermaster. And then after the war, we demobilized down to an army that was smaller than Romania's, so it wasn't that big a deal either. But in the 1920s, a set of uniform colors evolved. Uh, the United States Army report on this doesn't even give a year. That's how many people don't know. With the uh, dark green coat and light taupe trousers that look pink in certain light. And that is why they're called the pinks and greens. And then those were sort of formalized in 1940 once it became apparent that we were going to maybe need a lot more uniforms than the ones that we were wearing. And the sort of high watermark of the pink and greens was between 40 and 43. Then Eisenhower said, you know what? I like wearing a, a cooler looking jacket. And so he got the Eisenhower jacket and that began the last, the sort of the, the disintegration of the army standard. The other thing that happened was, that when the Air Force became a separate service, it got a snappy new blue uniform, and I think there was some uh, service uh, rivalry going on there, service envy. And since everyone, uh, there were like 
probably, I don't know, a hundred million pinks and greens that were made during World War II, those got onto the civilian market and people started wearing them. And many of those people were unemployed. And so the soldiers would come back from Korea wearing their snappy new pinks and greens and they'd see garbagey pinks and greens all over the street. And it, it, uh, became a morale issue basically. So, um, I'm not sure why the army believes that it won't be a morale issue this time, because if anything, the street is even faster to pick up on military, uh, uh, fashion than it was in 1953. But be that as it may, they swapped it out for a new, uh, uh, polyester uniform in the fifties, the miracle fabric of polyester, which lasted until, um, uh, the, uh, new uniform, uh, swapped it out. And I think in the eighties, right. And we're not talking about the, uh, uniform that you wear in battle. Into battle. The one no, you, this is the, uh, wear in the office, what you, what you might call, uh, the undress uniform as opposed to the dress uniform, which you wear on, on, uh, parades and things. This is just where you, what you wear while you're bustling around the Pentagon carrying notes to each other that say, um, uh, uh, it looks like, uh, Al Qaeda is controlling the world's supply of manganese or whatever. And, uh, then you do not go into the, uh, battlefield and fight anybody. Um, and, and so that's uh, the sort of the, um, on base business suit type uniform that, uh, they are uh, replacing now. And they're sort of still, because as I mentioned, the actual shape of the coat changed over the course of the forties. Eisenhower jacket, uh, Marshall wore a belted version that looked pretty snappy. So people are sort of trying to figure out which exact version of the jacket will be the official jacket for the new army. I suppose they've got it worked out by now, but yes, in my own research, it really was apparently no more than when, um, uh, your favorite uh, baseball team suddenly shows up in their 1970s uniform, except that the 1970s uniform of the White Sox is eye-wateringly bad, and the uh, pinks and greens are actually, as everyone agrees, pretty snappy looking. Right, and I was reading uh, one, I, I guess the only minor controversy surrounding this is that people don't want to have to buy, shell out for a new uniform, because there was a new uniform like two years ago, mm-hmm. and obviously, you know, whoever's now in charge of this is just recently in charge of this and has decided to do this, is basically the overt reason why it's happening. Mm-hmm. And there's some back and forth of, you know, we reimburse you for those, right? Right. So <laughs> this whole thing, frankly, therefore smells like a veil out. Right. Yes. The, so the whole uh, clearly the men who stare at goats are back on the scene. Uh, that's all been denied. That's all been shut down. So of course we know it still exists. And why do they want to bring back these classic uniforms can. All right. Uh, Thomas Vallejo, of course, suggests simply an example of associational magic. Um, if you, this is like when, if you are a, a primitive, uh, shaman around a campfire in, um, uh, old, old Europe, maybe you would direct, you would wear the, the horns of the deer so that you would get the power of the deer. Uh, maybe you would put the feathers of the bird in your head so that you could fly up to heaven and talk to God. Uh, God with a small G, of course, because you're a good shaman. You know that there's a zillion gods. You just have one that you talk to. And so, obviously, the same sort of magical thinking applies if you wear the uniform uh, that uh, conquered the world and uh, whipped uh, the Nazis and also the Japanese and occasionally the Italians. Uh, then you will be another world-beating military. Um, I think that maybe if you're looking for that, you should go back to the U.S. cavalry jacket that um, uh, fought uh, America's uh, last truly successful guerrilla wars, because those seem to be the ones that we are in more than we are 
uh, fighting globe-girdling serried ranks of panzers. But the army, like everyone, is nostalgic for World War II. So uh, that, I think, is uh, the magical thinking that Thomas Vallejo suggests, and it's certainly one possibility. Another possibility, obviously, is that whatever goes on with these pinks and or greens, they're not going to be the exact identical shade of pink and green, first of all, because as we mentioned, there was a lot of different uh, greens. That green gabardine had a lot of different forms and different shapes, and then it also would have different uh, colors and tones. Even in the height of the mass man era in the 40s, um, dye lots would have been different. So you have all kinds of different colors for your uh, green, and the pink legendarily changes color when you look at it under different light. So what I'm suggesting here, Robin, as no doubt you've seen ahead of me, is when you have combinations of color and form that can shift endlessly, what you basically got is a permutational magic. You're looking at a capitalism of some sort, using the Pantone numbers, perhaps, of the of the colors as your code, or um, uh, using the um, specific numerical ratios that create the cut of the jacket as another form of the code. So you have two sets of interweaving cabalet. So what you're creating, I would suggest, is not something so primitive and shamanic as associational magic, although I'm sure there's a lot of that too, but also you're creating a cabalistic hologram, Robin. That's my suggestion. And that if we knew what those numbers meant, if we had access to the Kabbalistic computers in the very center of the pentagram, oh, I mean Pentagon, dun-dun-dun, <laughs> then you would know what is the purpose of this hologram. And one certainly hopes that it is a uh, purpose that involves only the best interests of the United States of America and not those of a shadowy network of, um, uh, as you suggest, rightly purged uh, remote viewers. Another question coming to mind is if this is part of exploiting advanced uh, capabilities with, with new fabrics that are much better than the, the old ones. And again, the old, the old pink and green was gabardine. That was a, that's a good fabric. Don't be messing with the old fabric. So the old fabric was perfectly fine. And also yeah. all of this. Uh, okay. So that leads me to the other possibility, which is that uh, someone has realized that there are textile plants in key congressional districts uh, <laughs> that need uh, more production. Someone wants more South Carolina votes. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, but that would be the fun ruiner perspective on things. They're the worst. So it may very well be that, uh, you know, if the alien human hybrids who are, uh, being brought online in order to, uh, uh, fill the ranks, uh, you know, that they have different, uh, textile requirements. They're allergic to the fabrics used in the previous uniforms, but you can't, you know, just have a giant fabric switch because it's only been two years, right? Since the last, yeah, the, they, the 2007 was the, the, was the last, um, uh, change to the, uh, black, blue, and yellow, uh, uniform. Oh, I see. So this must have been just someone saying that they had to buy their uniform right, yeah. two years ago yeah. after the switchover happened. Right. But nonetheless, that's still fairly recent. Yeah, it is super so recent. So if they've been having problems with their alien human hybrids because of the, the textiles, they can't tell you that. They have to have some other reason to, to do it, and therefore, you might as well promote it as being, let's go back to this cool new design of, or cool older design of the, the greatest generation, because of course, you know, you're not allowed to say alien human hybrids in, in public. No, you are not. <laughs> For several excellent reasons. Um, another possibility, uh, in addition to, uh, Kabbalah and fun ruining and your special, uh, alien human hybrid fabrics, uh, thought is that the process is the process that by combining these two sort of uh, iconic shades, 
what you've got is also, and this is compatible with everything, is also an alchemical process. That the marriage of the dark green and the uh, taupe, the pink and the green, is a version of an alchemical marriage. Uh, the classic one is the red and the white. Obviously, I think it was British East India Company had red and white uniforms. I'll be corrected, I'm sure, uh, by somebody. But the but the red and the white, the classic alchemical marriage, that marriage has either produced progeny or has otherwise been taken off the table. Unless, of course, there is a uh, a control thread somewhere in uh, the uh, in in the in the pinks that is white and in the greens that is red. Uh, but the uh, question of if you can get this kind of result with this kind of alchemical marriage, what do you get with this other alchemical marriage? And then alchemical marriage of taupe and olive is, um, first of all, <laughs> is one of those marriages that you hope has an open bar, but the, the whole world <laughs> of other kinds of alchemy, uh, remains open. And perhaps, uh, we uncovered something, uh, when we were in, uh, in, uh, the Philippines or in China in the thirties that gave us some indication of some non-Western alchemy that we could use. And it has taken us this long to sort of sort it out. And it's like, oh, that explains why those uniforms were so effective as they had, that the, they were engaged in an alchemical process. And it's not so much image magic uh, in an attempt to, um, uh, to, to, to dress up as, uh, uh General uh, Marshall, but it's, General Marshall was so super effective because he was harnessing this alchemical blend of taupe and olive. And if we can figure out what that is, maybe it's a, maybe it's an herbalism uh, effect. Maybe the olive, uh, being the, 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 the tree of uh, Jupiter and, uh, having other, uh, magical connotations. Uh, Apollo also, I believe is, uh, is, is the olive tree. Um, that the, uh, whatever it is that makes taupe, uh, leaves or berries or t- wood, um, is also alchemically and herbalistically powerful. And there is some sort of ancient druidical tree magic going on, uh, as opposed to uh hippy dippy herbalist magic. And, uh, not that they're either one is more effective, but if you're a manly man's army, then you want to be using cool druid magic, not, um, uh, you know, uh, tea reading and, um, uh, figuring out vervain and things. Now, when it comes to both, uh, military engagements abroad and, uh, occult rituals, I always want to think about unintended consequences. And it seems to me that uh, something meant to bring back World War II is possibly an example of careful what you wish for. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, there's a reason uh, why the uh, greatest generation is clouded in nostalgia. And that's because, you know, people may uh, envy the days when uh, U.S. wars had discernible endings. Mm -hmm. uh, But... There were also millions and when all and the bad guys conveniently and... lined up on a field somewhere instead of sneaking around like sneakies. Yes. Uh, so uh, this actually could be, you know, a, a sinister plot by the uh, the death spirits uh, wanting to bring back, uh, you know, good old fashioned wars where the uh, by the god the, Ares the even greater death tolls. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It it it, it could certainly do that. It also could have other unintentional. Uh, consequences in that if you, um, are, uh, going back to our friend the shaman, the problem is if you, you know, when you put the bird stuff into your head, you get chopped up and become a different kind of a spirit. That's the whole point of this. But if you are not a sh- trained shaman, being chopped up and having your spirit reformed can be very traumatic. So we may see you know, a, a resurgence, not just of, uh, the, the Vim that fought the, the, that fought Hitler, but also of the 
1940s and all of their bad sides. The, the sort of the, the noir bender that basically, um, uh, America went on, uh, throughout the forties, the reaction in the fifties and then the total collapse in the 1960s. Maybe this is this attempt to sort of, uh, reiterate the fall of, um, uh, of America from globe beating power in 45 to, uh, abject humiliation in 1976. That basically being the arc of this uniform. Maybe they're trying that again, that this will be the thing. And then we'll go back to the, the army greens in, uh, 25 years and, uh, complete the process there. Another surprise that might await the player characters who are probing this mystery is if the question is why does the U.S. Army suddenly want its personnel to be able to pass for their counterparts in World War II? What if they're pouring forces through a time vortex back into World War II? Uh, perhaps this is why America won the war, is because time travel was invented in 2017. Right. And uh, this could be, you know, you could discover that you're messing with, uh, you know, a massive time incorporated operation that, uh, you know, sends more than vodka and you back in time. Yes, that I, I was just the, 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 um, uh, the, the, the Lanny Bud of this. And then, uh, the, the Operation Torch landings begin. Only they're the Operation Time Torch landings. Um, that, yeah, the, the notion of the Pentagon as the Ouroboros Serpent, right? Created in 1943. Um, it sort of loops around in this pen, in this, um, uh, looping pentagonal form. Its head comes back around, uh, bites itself in the butt. In the center of the Pentagon, instead of uh, a pentagram, as I jocularly suggested, perhaps there is a, a time vortex and that the entire point is to sort of create this time loop and thus create a time loop, a period that endlessly recurs in history when the United States is unbeatable and on top and also as a helpful uh, uh, coincidence. Um, the Pentagon is in charge of everything because it kind of was. So the notion may be to literally create a world of endless war. And the thought is, well, if we create a world of endless war, we know we're going to win. Then that means that we'll win and it'll be great. And we will be able to sort of just iterate this same loop around over and over and over until uh, World War II is fought at such an intensity that uh, when we win, we finally are able to win, imminentize the eschaton and dominate uh, the, the new millennium, uh, uh, lion and lamb lying down together, every man under his own vine and fig tree and a serried, uh, rank of P-51 Mustangs flying, uh, combat air patrol overhead to keep, uh, time Nazis at bay. And given, however, that this is the military industrial complex, another answer could be that this is something into which an enormous store of money and effort are being poured for negligible results. So it may just be an officer training program. Uh, that you, you know, everybody has to go back and, you know, do three months in World War II to study how things were done at that time and then, you know, come back and, and bring those lessons, uh, uh, forward, uh, into the present day, uh, into, uh, the, uh, current, uh, methodologies and trying to, you know, write it all down on the whiteboard afterwards. It's and, more effective live fire training than, than doing war games in, in the Texas desert to send someone back into world war two and have live fire training there. Yeah. I can see that being some idiotic plan that someone came up with that you're treating uh, the, the, the past literally as a vacant lot. Soldiers are on their phones too much these days. Let's show them how to survive without their Android phone. <laughs> send them back in time. Okay. How many millions of dollars will it take to, to change the uniforms? Okay, yeah. Time Vortex? How many bill? Okay, groovy. 
Problem solved. Well, I, I think we've solved this mystery, Ken. Yeah, I think we have. Uh, and can therefore uh, move through our own time vortex that leads us through this commercial to whatever's on the other side. when demons lodge in your memories. Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagaln. Ask for Askfagaln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Wear your Patreon backer insignia with pride alongside... Daniel Callahan. John Buckley. Lee Carnell. Louis Sylvester. And the Esoteric Order of Role Players. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Daniel Crockless asks Ken and Robin how... Do you write about marginalized groups in a game and do them justice while also being entertaining? You don't want, says uh, Daniel, to appropriate or trivialize their cause. Native Americans battling Wendigo, a wraith scenario during the 80s AIDS epidemic, a thing about the hashtag MeToo movement written by a guy. One of those doesn't seem trivialized at all. The second one, there was a wraith scenario during the fricking a Holocaust that was universally acclaimed as being uh, very sensitive and very effective. And uh, Ronan Farrell was a guy last time I looked. I'm pretty sure we're still allowed to write about it. Uh, Robin, what do you think of those examples and perhaps even the larger question? Right. If I was assigned any of those examples uh, by a publisher now, my first question would be, are you sure you want me to write about it? So I guess what we're talking about here is as members of the uh, regarded group as, uh, as your classic, uh, straight white dudes. Uh, how do you approach properly writing, uh, members of disregarded groups? And so one of the ways to investigate that question is, uh, now we have social media and we can go online and we can find out what people want who desire representation. What sort of representation are they looking for? And, uh, in a lot of cases, what people are looking for when it comes to the sort of the core issues is to have their struggle depicted by members of that group. And so 
I would advise, first of all, you know, wh- who wants this from us? Um, yeah. It's not that we are forbidden uh, from writing about it, but are we the best people to tackle this? Mm-hmm. So, for example, like ground zero for cultural appropriation is definitely uh, the indigenous people, particularly in uh, you know, the story of the Canadian indigenous peoples is one where cultural appropriation was literally the government stole their uh, ritual artifacts and art as part of an effort uh, in the 20s on up to eradicate their culture. So it's, that, uh, seems, that seems less like appropriation and just like plain old, um, you know, stealing. <laughs> <laughs> appropriation is a big word for stealing. Yeah. So the, the theft of culture in that case was literal. Let's. Mm-hmm. Take these beautiful objects that represent this beautiful culture, put them in a museum so that everybody can look at them, and then let's destroy your culture and send your kids off to residential schools in order to assimilate you by force and subject you to, you know, all the sorts of abuse that uh, we now know is absolutely expected in a situation where, uh, you know, vulnerable populations of kids are uh, being put under uh, supervision without the supervisor's being uh, themselves supervised. So I would be super reluctant to do a, uh, you know, group of Native American or Native Canadian PCs up against the Wendigo story. I would want to find uh, somebody who can speak to that from their direct experience and, rather than me having to research it. And even with the best of intentions, probably get stuff wrong because of the separation, the distance. Now, the I guess the textbook way to do this is to write your thing and then find somebody to do what is called a sensitivity read. But that is, first of all, assumes you have the budget to do that. And secondly, because you should pay that person. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then the question is, why aren't you uh, trying to make an effort to find someone uh, who can speak to that more, more directly? So the next question then is, how should we be representing uh, groups who uh, wish to be better regarded and better represented. And I think for those of us in more regarded groups, the way to do that is to depict uh, people from all uh, of these various groups as just part of your world Mm -hmm. in a way that there's just bunches of different people. And so your indigenous character, for example, uh, you are not making a big deal of their struggle or the fact that they are indigenous. They are indigenous and there's something else about them that makes them exciting and fun. That is why they were in the story in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it may even be a matter of think of the character, think of what you need them to do in the story, and then find a uh, group that it is refreshing and surprising to have them be part of as sort of a secondary kind of matter of fact uh, thing and leave the big stories to the people who directly want to tell them. I mean, I, I absolutely uh, get that perspective, but the trouble with it is that when you avoid the skilla of telling someone else's story and risking doing it badly, you then run into the cryptus of, well, now all of my stories about protagonists facing dire things that, that uh, derive from their cultural background are going to be about white guys. And is that what we want? That is the paradox. More things sure. about white guys? I don't know that that's what everyone wants. So... Um, like you say, obviously, if you, if your setting supports multi-ethnicity and multiple genders and, and all the other multiples that we are so fond of nowadays, um, make sure that you don't just default to having everyone be you. Uh, that's just good writing by and large. Um, and likewise, I would say that the practice, if 
for example, you have to write the uh, Native Americans battling Wendigo because you're doing a whole long thing about Wendigo and you need to have a segment set amongst the uh, Algonquin uh, natives before the coming of the hated French, um, then you can say, all right, um, I will research the hell out of it. I will do my best job because that is your, I think your job when you're writing anything is to do the research and make sure that you don't just sort of sloppily fall back on whatever garbagey collection of mythology you read back when you were 12, that you go out and you, and you find first, uh, primary sources and you read things. It's the same way that right. you, and you find new sources, particularly, uh, uh, any uh, with native cultures in particular, uh, the original wave of anthropologists did not always necessarily uh, get everything right. Yeah. And there, uh, those oral traditions continue. So uh, in that particular instance, you want to make sure that your research is uh, very much up to date because older stuff is uh, definitely going to trip you up. Yeah. And, uh, and at the very edge of that, if you, for example, find something in an older source that you can't substantiate, you definitely signpost it at the end of the book. You say, hey, or in a little box somewhere, you say, hey, I recognize that this element of this story only appears once in a Jesuit chronicle, but it turns out that that's really, really cool, and I wanted to use it, and here is the, uh, you know, sources to go look and find other things, because the needs of the drama are going to have to drive, because otherwise... All you're doing is writing anthropology, and there are anthropologists for that, for gush sakes, right? Right. Um, I think another thing that we want to think about is what is desired now versus what will be desired later in a world where people who are seeking greater social equity achieve it. That if, as people's stories do come to be represented and greater access uh, is granted to creators from different backgrounds, and here in role-playing we have an, an advantage uh, in that the barriers to entry, the, the bar to, to entry is so low <laughs> to, to do a role playing game product are, are very low, uh, compared to, you know, the barriers of entry needed to uh, get a movie budget behind you to make something as a director or even to make a comic book or even to make a comic book, uh, that it's, uh, easier to get in. Um, we have a problem, uh, in terms of making our field of creators more diverse in that the, uh, people playing games, has not been diverse until very, very recently and isn't fully diverse yet. Well, I mean, a lot of them have been, uh, a lot of people of various uh, diverse backgrounds have been playing the games forever, but have given up on trying to write because back in the day there were barriers all over society and they said, right. oh, why bother? Um, and there's also plenty of people of all races, creeds, and colors who say, why bother? Because they look at the pay rate. And that is a completely right. there's, legitimate... There's a question of, uh, <laughs> if you were trying to help bring uh, people from diverse backgrounds along into uh, gaming writing, is are you doing them a favor? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, <laughs> thank God this lifeboat is fully diverse. <laughs> right. Because one thing about, you know, white male confidence is it leads us to do stupid things like make writing games our career. Mm -hmm. So... You know, are you actually, <laughs> whether you're helping someone by uh, bringing them along is perhaps a question for a whole other segment. Yeah, perhaps uh, but, but definitely, you know, there was, uh, you know, there was an era where, you know, Mike Pondsmith was, uh, you know, 25% of the African-American population on the floor at Gen Con. Yeah. And as that changes over time, the talent pool will diversify as well. And, you know, you can only... Uh, make games with the people who are uh, playing games and only a tiny fraction of them 
uh, make the terrible mistake like <laughs> you and I have of trying to make a career of it. So th- that's a whole other, you know, level of sort of uh, practical challenges in the, in the difficulties of uh, trying to diversify your uh, creative staff. Um, and we've gone off in a, a big tangent. So to return, I guess, to, to Daniel's question, if you really have something that you want to say that you think will be uh, well received, the other question is how to do this and, and have it not be boring, right? Yeah. How, how can it still be exciting? And I would argue there is just that those two issues, the issue of representing people the way they uh, wish to be represented and is fair to represent them, and the issue of what's fun and exciting are kind of unrelated issues, right? They're on a parallel track. Mm-hmm. But if you do succeed in creating uh, people who seem real and vital and interesting to interact with, who will, in a role-playing setting, mostly be the non-player characters, right? Um, I guess you'd be writing backgrounds for pre-gens, perhaps. If, if well, if you're writing a game doing, like but, um, uh, that's, uh, let, let's say you've decided you want to write a game about um, the Apache resistance to the cavalry, and you want to do that so that the players are playing the Apache, not playing the cavalry, so that you're presenting this other uh, version of the sort of established uh, Western narrative, then you sort of need to assume that everyone involved is Apache, that you can't play the, you know, the Colonel Dunbar who just shows up uh, dances with wolves style. Oh, thank God there's a white guy here to help. Um, you want to make sure that everyone is sort of invested in uh, Apache culture in the same sort of a way that, say, John Wick wanted to make sure everyone was invested in Rokuganese culture for L5R because you're not playing, you know, 20th century Americans paratrooped in to L5R any more than you're playing 21st century Americans paratrooped into any of the various settings that you're doing unless you're actually setting it in, you know, today. Right. Uh, so you, you, with every game, you have to create a way for the players to inhabit their character, whether they're being an orc or a Rokugani samurai or, or a vampire or whatever it is. So do, you know, it's just that if you're doing the Apaches, as my example dragged me into, um, you just have to do a, a, a lot of, a, a lot more work because that's a real thing and you didn't just make it up the way that you did vampires or Rokugani or orcs. Right. And that points to another thing is that one of the uh, advantages of working in genre is that you can uh, take things away from the specific and generalize them into uh, a, a, a set of genre tropes that can refer to the issue you want to get at without bringing into play these issues of uh, uh, identity and who gets to represent uh, different groups. So that if you have something that you want to say about the Apache versus uh, cavalry conflict, and you want to have a character, uh, characters from that point of view, but you don't uh, wish to tread on uh, people's uh, emotional territory. You can uh, make it about, uh, you know, here's aliens and here's uh, uh, the the space people, and and you can, uh, if you file off enough of the serial numbers, you can get at the human human issue behind that without being engaged in a territory breach because there are going to be people who argue that encouraging players from all different backgrounds to play uh, indigenous uh, people reminds them too much of the problem of self-indigenization uh, whereby people who are, don't have a native background are uh, taking one on for whatever reason and it is currently you know, certainly a, a huge matter of concern and controversy here in Canada. So uh, some people might look at the effort of Oh, we're all playing Apache characters as 
uh, one that uh, provides representation. Others will look at it as this is inherently an appropriation. Yeah, well, I mean, you're always going to get someone who doesn't like what you do for any number of reasons. Right. And so you have to decide uh, <laughs> where you draw the line and uh, uh, be willing to uh, take uh, the, the criticism that comes from that in what is currently uh, an area of a red hot controversy right. where uh, not everybody, even apparently on the same side, agrees what the ground rules should be. And, and certainly if you are going to go into any area that is more fraught than uh, the sort of safe uh, space of dragons and such, then uh, yes, you always need to do more research and, and work harder and be more aware because just like walking into any area where there are more ways to do it wrong, you have to be better at it. And so it may be if this is your first ever thing and you're not uh, an Apache or don't read Apache, maybe don't make that your first uh, whack at the bat. Maybe you start with something a little closer or, as you suggest, file the serial numbers off. Although, of course, then someone's going to yell at you for um, uh, taking the problem of uh, the, the specific issues of the Apache and, and turning them into a, a generic story that doesn't, that is deracinated and doesn't connect to anything. So, you know, damned if you do and damned if you don't really. And that's true of any uh, issue where you want to deal with something that is uh, really fraught. And, you know, certainly my hope is that as our various groups gain more uh, equity and are uh, treated fairly, if that is, you know, if we're headed to the uh, optimistic version of history, that <laughs> narrator, those, we are not. <laughs> yeah, narrator, we are not. These issues are really reflective of other things that are uh, very deep and, and harder to fix. It's, uh, you know, easier to alter the way that pop culture deals with different groups than it is to get, uh, you know, clean water in uh, indigenous communities or to uh, hash out, you know, long extant uh, issues over uh, treaties and land, but uh, you know, that those material improvement in people's lives uh, if it happens uh, will make it a a little easier to get uh, into these issues, but until that time, I think you have to be aware of uh, the sort of the the depths of passion involved, and uh, again, I would go back to my suggestion that we uh, want to have uh, the people who are directly involved in these issues uh, take the lead in uh, creating uh, work about them. Well, I certainly think that everyone should be uh, making uh, role-playing games on issues that uh, concern them. I've always said that, uh, always and everywhere. But my takeaway is, yeah, if you decide you want to do this, to go outside your your, your category, whatever that is, um, be like everybody. Just do the research. Uh, don't use lazy stereotyping. But again, this is, I think, as we said earlier, that's just true of everything you write. You should always do your research. You should never write lazy stereotypes and characters that don't have any other function except to take an arrow or a, or a bullet. Um, you should, you should provide people who are people and cultures that are cultures and, uh, work as hard as you possibly can within the constraints of, uh, time and budget to do both of those things, regardless of what you're writing about. Uh, well, if that isn't a, a, a summation, I don't know what it is. So let's head on through this commercial to see what's on the other side. When I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think Paranoia, Go Bags, 
guns. And opera. Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. It's time once more to head up the creakety cobweb stairs to smile and wave at the portrait of Madame Blavatsky and head on in to the Edwardian parlor where waits the consulting occultist. He's sitting there in his smoking jacket, and this time he's been summoned by Patreon backer Michael Parker. And he asks, for what occult or elliptonic purposes did someone steal Isaac Newton's Philosophy Naturalis Principia Mathematica and other rare books from the Carnegie Library's rare books room? Uh, so the way this story goes that in April of last year, uh, it was discovered that, uh, over time, 314 items from their rare books collection have gone missing, including many maps, Bibles, the things stolen tend toward the visual, things with a lot of illustrations, uh, books by naturalists, but it covers a, a wide array of uh, different items. And the, the Newton book, uh, is the, the jewel, uh, of uh, these uh, stolen items, it would a uh, similar book, uh, similar copy of the same book uh, sold for three point four million dollars uh, recently. Also, a first edition of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations were taken along uh, with all sorts of other uh, books. Not a lot of overt grimoires or occult items, but of course, can uh, uh, Newton himself uh, dates back to the uh, uh, period just before. Uh, what we think of as the uh, cult and what we think of as science diverged. And so there may indeed be some uh, great mystical secret uh, at work here. Uh, there were security cameras in the place, and uh, uh, nothing, I think, was seen on the security cameras. So the police have hinted that they're profoundly disappointed at someone on staff. That is mm-hmm. some sort of great betrayal. In, of course, saying it's an inside job and they haven't found out who it is yet. But yeah. we know that that's fun running because obviously invisibility magic people. Um, so Ken, w- what's going on here? Well, the, uh, Principia Mathematica obviously is, as you say, the crown jewel. Newton's actual alchemical manuscripts remained unpublished at his, uh, death and were bought, uh, by, believe it or not, uh, Maynard Kynes, the famous economist for uh what really turned out to be kind of a song uh those books i think are in the bodleian now or those papers rather are in the bodleian um if i'm wrong someone will i'm sure correct me but the question of does newton hide stuff in the principia i think is probably i mean they may have taken that just because it's worth as you say 3 million and change um or there may be a specific a book code situation where it is that exact printing, not even that edition, that is the alarm bell that, that contains uh, the, the alchemical notation. But in that case, it probably wouldn't have been Newton that snuck it in there. It would have been someone who was using Newton to get at the truth, and that could have been anyone who owned it since 1687 when it was published. So we don't know that it's a Newton association. I would also 
uh, points to the fact that there were nine incunabulae, which are books printed before 1500 that we don't know what they were. Any of those could have been a grimoire. Not being Pennsylvania book dealers, we have not got a copy of the watch list that the Carnegie issued, and perhaps the Carnegie might not have even known what it had. I mean, if it had a copy of the Necronomicon, for example, it might merely have listed it as the Kanun e Islam, as we know at least one such copy was bound back in the day, uh, and not right. have noticed that it was, or it might have been a grimoire that was not a grimoire, such as Trithemius's work on cryptography, which he disguised his book on cryptography as a grimoire, which of course makes the truly uh, illuminated realize <laughs> that he disguised his grimoire as a book of cryptography disguised as a grimoire. And that that is uh, where we stop looking for turtles at the bottom. So if there was a Trithemius, for example, in the collection, uh, you and I, I believe, saw Trithemius, NBD, but KBD, uh, uh, touched it with our own little hands, John D's Trithemius, but, uh, the, um, uh, the question of a different Trithemius might well have, uh, gone under the radar there at what seems to have been kind of a sloppy operation at the Carnegie Library. It turns out in 1991, they were warned by experts that their security was terrible, that the environment in the, in the olive room, where they, uh, the Oliver room rather, where they had the books kept was not up to preservationist snuff and that some of their rare holdings, uh, were not unique and therefore could have been sold to pay for the storage and security of the unique ones, even if they didn't want to store them with a university nearby, such as Carnegie Mellon. Now, admittedly, one assumes that the expert who comes in and says, you should store your books at Carnegie Mellon may have gone to Carnegie Mellon or had some other connection there. So we can't rule out self-dealing sadly common in the book room. Also, I would point out that only of the 314 items, only 173 of those were full books. The others were books that were cut out of 130 other books. And uh, those include maps. They include plates. And of course, as we all know from our perusal of grimoires, what is, where do you draw the pentagram and, and put all the magic words? You put it in the plate. So uh, a grimoire might've lost a page and we don't have that. The grimoire specifically has been reported stolen. Finally, I would mention that the other, the other first edition that I think is, uh, particularly, uh, notable in this is a first folio of Spencer's The Fairy Queen from 1609. And we know that Edmund Spencer is up to his eyeballs in the School of Night and up to his eyeballs in fairy magic. So better than invisibility, Robin, we have fairies. Fairies can't right. be seen by cameras. That's well known fact. That's fairy fact. If you see fairy photographs, they have been put together by young girls at the bottom of a garden to mess with credulous detective novelists, not real pictures of fairies. That's the, that's something you can take to the bank, except for Tilda Swinton. No fairy can actually be captured on film. And she has a special dispensation from Titania, I believe. So if the, the fairies are uh, manifesting through a copy of the fairy queen, uh, because of course, Spencer, uh, you know, he obviously uh, met fairies and, and talked to them and had to uh, have a, a pact with them in order to uh, write his uh, allegory about them because mm -hmm. uh, they hated being used as a, a veneer for political satire. They did not like it. They, they did not care for that at all. So uh, obviously they, they, uh, they felt that it was appropriation, frankly. Yes. So, so some dread configuration came down upon them and therefore they were able to manifest in the library and then uh, take the books. And so the question is, have they taken them back to fairyland or are they in fact, because, as you suggest, they're taking out a lot of illustrated plates, and we know that, uh, first of all, fairies might just like pretty pictures. We know so they, they like might art. have taken them back They will literally to, uh, never Roma. shut up about it, if you ask them. Yes. 
So they might have, you know, taken them back to, uh, you know, make their collages of, uh, of people and pin them up, up against foliage and try to convince other fairies that people are real. Mm -hmm. Or, uh, they, they, uh, could in fact need, uh, $3.4 million plus and be, uh, you know, having assumed a lot of uh, human form, incredibly gorgeous, uh, uh, memorable, yet also you forget them when they're gone, human form. Uh, and so uh, they may, in fact, be uh, fencing these books, because as we know, uh, that color plates uh, from rare books are themselves uh, very valuable because yes. people uh, use them as prints. They uh, frame them, put them on the wall, and that's a big... Uh, reason why uh, antique books get destroyed is because in a lot of cases their va- their resale value, if you cut out all the uh, pictures and and frame them, is greater than the the full thing. And you know you don't have to worry about the original value of the book if you're stealing it, especially if you're a fairy. You have no interest in uh, the tender sensibilities of the, the Carnegie Reading Room. Yeah, there's a and very so- very sad book about this called The Island of Lost Maps. Uh, if you want to know more about stealing maps out of books, uh, he, uh, soft pedals the fairy part though, in fairness. Right. And so if it's option A, that they're just taking the pictures back to fairyland because they like them, uh, that's not much of a, a narrative for a player character no, to get involved with. So the, the question is, uh, what do, uh, these fairies who have, because of the, you know, just as the overt security measures of the Carnegie Room are, uh, lackluster, so is the warding against right. uh, fairies that that any you know grade A library that has a copy of the first edition of the Fairy Queen has to install in order to prevent the fairies. They have coming. to put the cold iron and the salt and the rest of that, the hawthorn. Yeah, that they they skimped on all of those things. They and just so, use regular uh, iron. That's the, people always do that, Robin. They say things like cold iron isn't a real thing; it doesn't exist. And you're like, but Kipling, man. Yeah, you you go to harm, home hardware and you know you get an alloy and and everything. Uh, Goes a cropper. So, what what are the uh, what are the fairies uh, trying to raise money for by uh, selling all of these uh, these books in the in the black market? I think I think that some of them, as you say, are indeed the fairies just uh, getting a little bit of the ready, and that's just to fund their other activities in human in the in the human world. They know that you can't just leave leaves around that look like gold anymore because uh, first of all, leaves don't work on PayPal. There are lots of other problems with leaves as, as currency that we found in this modern era. Yes. The, the dark web is not interested in leaves. It does not. It, Bitcoin is the closest we've come. And even that, not good enough. Even the fairies don't know how to cash that out. No, they do not. I think a lot of it may be that if they're moving through a portal in the fairy queen that they took, uh, Principia Mathematica and the Wealth of Nations so that they could go through portals to 1687 and 1776. Uh, the nine books before 1500 are portals throughout the uh, late um, uh, 15th century that they are using the books to travel via those books to the lands of other uh, of other times and perhaps uh, much like the Pentagon building, uh, getting ready to fight wars in their own, they don't really see it as the past, but it's sort of rival fairy kingdoms that just look a lot like them, which in fairness is pretty much all fairy kingdoms. So uh, the sort of the high uh, game of Seelie and Unseelie is now the high game of Seelie and 1776 Seelie. And uh, they are either doing it uh, just to pursue their uh, their meaningless wars uh, throughout time, or that they are building a, uh, that perhaps Newton 
revealed to them that space and time are the same thing and that they are using that knowledge to build a fairy web in which to ensnare all of us, or at least all of us since 1450. The other possibility is that it has something to do with the original uh, conspiracy by the fairies to give us science so that they could have magic all to themselves. Because uh, I think it's well known to all of our listeners that the apple that uh, hit Newton on the head was not actually just randomly dropped from a tree, but was chucked by a sprite. Yes. And so they, uh, presumably after all of this time, they are looking at the world now and looking at uh, science denialism and uh, this whole, uh, you know, reversion to uh, magical thinking. And again, they think magical thinking is for them, not for us. And right. they, uh, we're beginning to leech away all of the energy from fantasy land with all of our crazy conspiracy theories and memes. And so it may well be that they have just yeah, the, borrowed. The new age they didn't mind because that didn't actually have any magical power. But once we got, uh, the secret of the dank meme that only the fairies had had, now we're trouble. I- exactly. Or, you know, the, the new age may have been a matter of concern and is, is part of, you know, it's kind of reached a crest. It takes fairies a while, I think to get concerned about things and this to take action. This is true. And so it may well be that they have just uh, borrowed the Newton book in order to take it back to fairyland. They're going to have to re-memorize all of this science because that's not their, their metier. They, they invented it, but then they forgot it again because boring. Yeah. And well, that's, so that's why that's why they had Newton write it down. Yeah. And so they, uh, they may be uh, having to refresh their memory in order to find, uh, you know, a new Newton to bring rationalism back to uh, the Western world, at the very least, because the Western world seems to be losing its moorings. And, uh, you know, so they may well bring much of that stuff back. Um, and, of course, they took all the pretty pictures because yeah, they, they were pretty, pretty. Because they're pretty. And also so that they can, you know, pay their um, uh, hotel bills and such. Right. So we've got one option that takes you into fairyland. Uh, to get there and, and find out that, uh, really once you get there, they assign you the job of helping them bring science back. Or, uh, you have a trail of, uh, following shady book dealers to find which of them have this sort of slack-jawed, hypnotized look, uh, when you ask them, uh, who sold them that, uh, beautiful color plate that they've got framed on the wall behind them. Yeah, you can, um, you can investigate the, um, uh, the, 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 the human world side, or you can go into fairyland, and that will depend, I guess, on your, on your skill set as an investigator. Or you do like a, um, a law and order thing, you know, every occult crime, there are two components. There is the humans who solve it, and the fairies who inspire them. Dun dun! A lot of that. Yeah, I guess the question, the other question is, maybe, maybe you can do this as a game, as you're Oberon's huntsman, and you've just heard that a bunch of joyriding fairies are trying the old time gate trick, and you have to go into the crazy, annoying modern world with its iron and its smoke and its, its bad poetry and, uh, deal with these, uh, sort of lost boy type fairies that are out in, uh, the human world, uh, buying, um, uh, vape pens and doing all kinds of other goofy, uh, non-fairy type things. And, and that can be the, the, the premise of the game, that it's actually that you're playing sort of orthodox fairies from fairyland who know better than to monkey around with things, no matter how temptingly bad the book collection is. And you have to sort of run down these punk fairies that have come out, um, uh, to, to steal books and, and do, and do crimes. And, and post things to Instagram, which is the worst. Right. It is the worst because, um, unless they, like, maybe they've used Newton to figure out, although they didn't take the optics. So I don't know how they got on Instagram, Robin. Maybe they're posting pictures of other people to Instagram. Maybe that's what they're doing. Uh, yeah, they're just posting a whole bunch of, of hashtags and stuff. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, well, as, as usual, uh, you know, anything that 
points the way for. Oh, you know what they did? They built those Instagram people out of flowers. There you go. That that's because you can take pictures of flower constructs. That's also well known. So it's basically just a bunch of blodwids out there um, uh, uh, talking about how they're using their their tummy tea and whatnot. Uh, right, and uh, they're probably trying to start a reality TV show and stuff, mm-hmm. and that uh, explains why there's you know so many recaps. Uh, in the course of a reality TV show, so much filler and so little actual content is because the fairies get distracted and, uh, Right. Or no, that, that's a poetic form. It's like when you repeat the chorus over and over. Okay. So you're arguing that reality TV is, is a, uh, is fairy poetry. It's why it sucks, Robin. That's what I'm trying to say. Right. Uh, but yeah, but it could be an either or. I'm, I'm, I'm not married to that. I mean, it's not a, a matter of solid known fact the way that it is about, um, uh, flower people and whatnot. Yeah. So I, yeah. I think if we want our, our players to be motivated to stop things from happening. I think having them stop fairies uh, making reality television even more boring than it already is is a, a pretty good thing to have them stop them from doing. At it's least a, it's an admirable. It's an admirable goal, certainly. Yeah. Uh, well, I think uh, now that we've uh, sketched out at least three different uh, campaign arcs uh, that can uh, sprout out of the uh, theft of these books, that we have uh, done our job for another week and sign off. But we'll rejoin you next week with more similar nonsense. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Fagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Shelter yourself from incoming apples in the company of backers like... Paul and Cleo Bushland. Brian Thomas. Diane Donaldson. Ethan Cordray. And Garrett Fitzgerald. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. The glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky is now a t-shirt. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.